Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. In this episode of Cardioscripts, Liz will interview Dr. Kristen Watson about the use of beta blockers post-MI. We hope you enjoy. Today on Cardioscripts, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Kristen Watson. Dr. Watson is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Science at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. She's a member of the Atrium Cardiology Collaborative and the coordinator for the university's Cardiology Pharmacy Residency Program. Dr. Watson also practices in the ambulatory care setting, and we're so excited and thankful she took time out of her busy schedule to be with us here today on Cardioscripts. On this episode of Cardioscripts, we'll be talking about a trial titled Long-Term Beta Blocker Therapy in Clinical Outcomes After Acute Myocardial Infarction in Patients Without Heart Failure Nationwide Cohort Study. And this came out in the European Heart Journal in 2020. And the purpose of this study was to evaluate the association of beta blocker therapy for one year or longer and mortality in patients after an acute myocardial infarction, or MI, without heart failure. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we talk about this study. So these were acute MI patients, but they did not have heart failure. This was a population-based retrospective cohort study in Korea, and patients were divided into two groups. So there were those who were on beta blockers for a year or longer, and we'll refer to that group as the longer-term beta blocker group, and those who were on beta blockers for less than a year, and we'll refer to those as the shorter-term beta blocker group. Now, patients were included if they were greater than 18 years of age and had undergone revascularization for myocardial infarction. Patients were excluded if they had a history of heart failure, revascularization before the index MI, if they were newly prescribed beta blockers within six months before the index MI, or if they had contraindications to beta blockers, such as asthma or chronic obstructive lung disease within six months before MI. Patients were also excluded if they had conduction abnormalities or if they developed heart failure, recurrent MI, or death within one year of the index event. Their primary outcome they looked at was all-cause death, but they also looked at secondary outcomes that included recurrent MI and hospitalization for new heart failure. A total of 28,970 patients were included, and of those, 22,707 received beta blockers for a year or more and 6,263 for less than a year. The duration of beta blocker therapy in the longer term beta blocker group was a median of 1,146 days, and in the shorter term group, it was 72 days. In terms of the types of beta blockers these patients received, 52.9% received carvedilol, 33% bisoprolol, 5.8% nabivolol, and 1.2% metoprolol. At baseline, the mean age was about 61 years, and about 80% of patients were male. So at the index MI event, 30.2% and 25.5% of patients had hypertension in the longer term and the shorter term beta blocker groups, respectively. They also looked at hypertension a year after MI, and there were 35.6% in the longer term beta blocker group and 31.9% in the shorter-term beta blocker group who had hypertension. 
18.7% of patients had diabetes at the time of the event, and about 21% of patients had diabetes a year after the event in both groups. About 5% of patients had hyperlipidemia at the index event, and about 9% of patients had hyperlipidemia in both groups one year after the MI. About 85% of patients were on an ACE or an ARB at baseline in both groups. But a year after MI, 74.7% were on an ACE or an ARB in the longer-term beta blocker group. About 50% were on an ACE or an ARB in the shorter-term beta blocker group. At baseline, about 92% of patients were on a statin. But a year after the index event, 95.2% of patients in the longer-term beta blocker group and 68.6% of patients in the shorter-term beta blocker group were on statins. About 97% of patients were on aspirin at the index event, but a year after that event, 94.9% were on aspirin in the longer-term beta blocker group, and 69.7% of patients were on aspirin in the shorter-term beta blocker group. At baseline, about 70% were on clopidogrel after that MI event, but a year after the event, about 69% in the long-term beta blocker group and 51% in the short-term beta blocker group were on clopidogrel. About a quarter of patients were on ticagrelor or prazogrel at baseline, and a year later, 14.5% in the longer term and 8.9% in the shorter term beta blocker groups were on one of these agents. Also, after the index event, we saw that about 94% of patients in both groups were on DAPT, and the median DAP duration was 434 days in the longer term beta blocker group and 344 days in the shorter term beta blocker group. Overall, in the study, the median follow-up was 3.5 years. For the primary outcome, they found a significantly lower risk of all-cause death in those who were receiving longer-term beta-blocker therapy versus those who were receiving shorter-term. And this came out to an incidence rate of 13.1 versus 25.7 per 1,000 person years with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.81 and a confidence interval of 0.72 to 0.91. Additionally, they also found a statistically significant benefit in all-cause mortality in the longer-term beta-blocker group when they looked at two years and three years as well. So that is an overview of um, the trial we'll be discussing today. And so Kristen, I think even before diving into all of that, it may be nice to kind of take a step back and discuss some of the previous literature um, that kind of led up to this study with beta-blockers after myocardial infarction. And also maybe kind of if you could touch on how that plays into our current management of these patients and some of the guideline recommendations that we see. Yeah, absolutely. So I always think it's fun to do a history lesson in pharmacotherapy when we're talking about cardiac conditions. So this use of beta blockers in the post-MI period really started to be studied in the 1960s. Practice was totally different than what we look at now when these agents were first studied. Initially, MIs were treated with bed rest, anticoagulants, digoxin, and maybe some diuretic use. And those initial studies with beta blockers in that post-MI period, there's a lot of limitations to those based on study design. And also looking at that data then compared to now, treatment has drastically changed. As we kind of fast forward to the 1980s, 1990s, the data became a much better trial designs, I would say, compared to what we initially had and started seeing the impact of beta blocker therapy with the reduction MI 
or a reduction in revascularization. But those studies were before the reperfusion era, right? So then we started to see in the 1990s an increased use of aspirin. We had lytics come, and then we also started having patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention. And those three things in itself really changed outcomes in the MI patient setting. So as practices evolve now, we know we have our P2Y12 inhibitors, we have our statins, which are statins greatly reducing the risk of death post-MI. And the question has really become, do beta blockers still play as a substantial role in the post-MI period? And like you said, we're, we're not talking about our patients with a reduced ejection fraction because we know with certainty that beta blockers in that population reduces the risk of death and morbidity associated with heart failure. But really has been called into question, how beneficial are beta blockers at this point when we now have substantially better treatment for myocardial infarction? And so there's been some data looking at okay, at what period of time is it good? Is it in that first year post-MI we see the benefit of beta blockers still? And then how about when we look one to two, three years down the road? Is there a period that we can stop? So for the most part, the guidelines are recommending that we start beta blockers in that post-MI period unless there's a contraindication to therapy for our patients. One thing I think just to point out in this study, they talk about asthma and COPD being a contraindication to beta blocker. And I think for those of us who practice in the area of cardiology, we don't consider that to be an absolute contraindication. It really depends upon the severity of lung disease. So our patients in cardiogenic shock at that presentation of MI are not being started on beta blockers, or if they're bradycardic without a pacemaker involved, we would withhold therapy for those. But then the question really becomes, how long do we continue beta blocker therapy? And in our non-STEMI patient, population, right, that continued use of therapy, we can continue it, but that use past that three-year mark, the data is not really there. But when can we stop and when is it safe to stop, I think is a big question we're all wondering because we try to minimize that polypharmacy for our patients. And I also just want to take a minute to plug an article that, that came out called Through the Decades, and, and Kristen's one of the authors on there. So we'll include that in our show notes, but it's a really really great reference and really nicely takes you through some of the literature. And I guess kind of shifting into this study, could you kind of give us your initial overall thoughts when you read through? I think one of the big things when I'm reading this study, and you hit on when you're talking about the patients who are enrolled in this study, when we look at those patients who are on beta blocker use for less than one year, we saw a substantially lower rate of aspirin use and statin use in those patients. So with aspirin, 25% less patients were on it. With statin therapy, it was over 26% less statin use. So in my mind, I said, okay, what's the difference between these patients who receive beta blocker long-term, so that year or more, or not? And the Charleston index, which is is something that is used to predict mortality at that one-year mark and has been shown to have a predictive value in the MI patient population was similar, right? They say it's statistically different, but it's a difference of 0.1 in that score. And that takes into consideration different patient comorbidities, which we know increases a patient's risk of death. And that wasn't really different, but we don't have a clear understanding of why these other medications 
were lower in use. So were these non-adherent patients who may not have access to care or not as invested? And so are those things in itself predictors of worse outcomes in that patient population? And as the authors also mentioned in their limitations, there's a lot that we don't know about their MI. So what were their culprit lesions? What kind of timiflow did they have, which we know is associated with differences in mortality for patients. So there's a lot of unknowns, I think, in this study. And I had those kind of questions came up as I went through the study and how could I use these results and apply these to practice based on a lot of these unknown variables. So my my next question and something I thought was kind of interesting in reading through the study was the types of beta blockers they use. So the majority were on pervadolol, but if we look through some of the previous literature in this patient population, a lot of studies looked at metoprolol. I thought it was interesting that only 1.2% roughly um, in this trial were, were on metop. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, especially when we think about this as being you know, Korean population and, and our practice here in the United States. Yeah, so I, that was really interesting to me as well. So as you mentioned, like metoprolol is really the most common beta blocker we know in the United States. And like looking at the top two, 300 drugs, metoprolol is number six on our list and carvedilol is the second most commonly used beta blocker in the US. But there's a difference of 44 million scripts between metoprolol and carvedilol. Looking at different things in Korea to kind of see why these agents might be more commonly used, especially nabivalol being their number three. And we really infrequently see that used in the U.S. A couple things that I came across that might help explain this. So one, going through the Ministry of Food and Drug site for Korea, when I typed in the different beta blockers, metoprolol didn't pop in there as a drug that's available. However, some patients in the studies use that. When you look at the hypertension guidelines in Korea, they specifically call out carvedilol and nabivalol in that for two patient groups because of its vasodilating properties. So I wonder if some of that is how practice is there. They prefer to go with more of your vasodilating you know, if you will, um, beta blocker therapies. And then I also found that there were several studies of nabivalol specifically in the Korean population. So maybe that also was another reason that we saw a difference in practice. I don't think though that the difference in beta blockers, right, that carvedilol was more common followed by basoprolol and nabivalol really makes a difference in terms of can we extrapolate this data to the United States or not. So any final thoughts, clinical pearls, any takeaways you want listeners to, to walk away with after hearing this episode? So I am a heart failure gal at a heart. So one thing I think is really important, and I know this study focused on those without a reduced ejection fraction, is we know that patients who have a low EF post-MI or have a low EF in general really need to be on beta blocker therapy. It's important to remember both in the non-MI setting that we also need to start therapy low and titrate up slowly. We have the data from the COMMIT trial that showed giving big doses of beta blocker early and being aggressive with therapy leads to worse outcomes. I think when we're looking at long-term, the indication for beta blocker before we take it, would consider taking it off board. Is there a reason that they're using it? So are they using it for AFib for rate control? I don't think, you know, we have a lot of data that shows us that maybe the benefit of beta blockers doesn't persist after that three-year mark. I don't know that 
I don't feel comfortable saying, okay, let's drop beta blocker at that point. I don't know that we have the I don't feel like we have the data at this point to say, okay, cut it off um, in that patient population. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on CardioScript. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Robert Page about the classic articles involving vasodilators and heart failure. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScript. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Cardioscripts and check out our website at Cardioscripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.